You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Well, good morning. That was fun, isn't it? Just fantastic. My name is Matt. As Kyle said, it's so great to be with you this morning. And some of you have followed our story of coming here as serving as missionaries uh, for uh, 10 years in the Czech Republic. And my wife and I were actually talking a little bit about, um, like, when was the last time, Matt, you actually preached? And I was like, hmm, well, what was that last time? And it was actually two months ago, about two months ago, and it was in a little town called Pisek, Czech Republic, and it was actually in Czech. So I was actually speaking in Czech, preaching in Czech. And so today, if, if you hear any undis, undiscerning words, like, what is he saying? It might be some Czech that's coming out. Just say, amen, and we'll just keep going. I might be a little confused, a little fuzzy. Um, but it's great to be here with you guys this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness and mercy. We see it every day. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, O oh Lord, would be pleasing to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, as uh, Kyle mentioned, we are closing out our series in the book of Acts. And it's been good, hasn't it? For those of you guys that have been with us, it's been so refreshing to spend time in the book of Acts. And uh, we're closing it out so that I guess it felt like the guys were like, hey, let's just give it to the new guy. Let's, let's, let's close it out with the new guy. It's a great idea. He was a missionary, so let's do this. Uh, so it's, it's wonderful to be in it. And I, I do remember just kind of a, a, a marker in some, for our service or for our series was um, when Pastor David, uh, probably a month or so ago, was recognizing when we were studying the book of Acts, it's called the Acts of the Apostles sometimes, but I don't know if you remember this if you're around. He said, actually, you know, as we spent time in this book, it's come to, to kind of this feeling that this, it's not really the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of God and the Apostles desperately trying to keep up with what God is doing. And that's what we've been seeing time and time again through this series. Uh, this small group of Jesus followers are overwhelmed, and they keep going despite persecution, arrests, despite killings of their leaders, assassinations, riots. They just keep going. They seem to be grounded by something, grounded by grace, and excited and motivated to keep moving. And in our topic, in our last chapter uh, that we're going to be studying, Acts chapter 26 is where we're going to be, uh, we find the church in the same situation. It's in trouble. More specifically, Paul is in trouble. He's on trial. And then last week we were in chapter 17, and there's a lot that has happened between 17 and 26, and we don't have time to get into all the context, but I encourage you, if you guys have been reading, you should go from 17 to the end of the book, 28. You'll see something fascinating. It's an incredible story. But for now... Paul's on trial, and he's being questioned. I don't know if you've ever been on trial. I don't know if any of you have been on trial before. Um, as a missionary living in ten, for 10 years in the Czech, 
I, as a foreigner living there, you know, we do everything we can to, to take on the culture, learn the language, and kind of blend in, right? But the minute you, like, open your mouth, even though we learn the language, it's like, can you say that again? <laughs> like, I'm hearing an accent. You're not from around here, are you? And then the questions come, right? The interrogation sometimes, sometimes innocent, sometimes more skeptical. Why are, what are you doing here, right? What's your story? And that actually uh, happened to us a while ago, probably about three years ago. I had this sense, this feeling of, of trial when um, my wife lets me know that we're supposed to have a parent-teacher meeting at the Czech high school where my, my daughter was going to school. So I was like, okay. We have a parent-teacher meeting, okay? i got to get geared up for that because that's going to be all checked. We're going to get to understand stuff, and some's going to get lost in translation probably. Uh, but then that, that, that evening before, she gets a confirmation call that this meeting is actually not a meeting. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? Well, something was lost in translation, and what we thought was going to be a meeting found out what we were, it was supposed to be a presentation, and the presentation was, the main, the key speaker for that presentation was us. We, the native speakers, the English speakers, were coming, were supposed to come and show up at a classroom. Yeah, this was all lost in translation the first time. Show up in a classroom and present to, nine, to about, probably about 25, 19-year-olds that have been studying English. And I was like, I don't have time for that. A presentation? i got to get that ready to go tomorrow. So I was a little frustrated by this surprise. But nonetheless, we got our stuff together, kind of shook off my pity party, and we went off uh, the following day to do this presentation. Presentation was fine. Um, I presented on, we presented on Colorado, where we used to live, and America. We got to interact a little bit. And at the end of the presentation, there was a chance for, for students to ask questions. And I remember there was a young man sitting in the back of the room, black t-shirt, he raises his hand. And this was this moment of interrogation. Because his question, for some reason, even though it was innocent, it hit me in a really strange way. His question was this, why are you here? Wow. And for some reason, <laughs> that question kind of hit an ontological level of my heart, like, why am I here? Not just why am I in this classroom? Why did I move my family here? What is my purpose? It was kind of shocking, but in that moment, I just felt a calm and a peace. And it was kind of like, should I tell him the truth? Why am I really here? And so... I took a deep breath, and I said, well, this is why I'm here. This is why my wife and I are here. We love God. Well, that's a strange thing to say in a, in a context, atheistic context. We love God, and we love hanging out with students to talk about faith, God, life, and things that really matter. And I was just waiting for some kind of, like, bad reaction, but it didn't occur. Actually, these students were kind of engaged and intrigued by that. So I was like, okay, I'm going to keep going with this. So I said, hey, not only that, we, we've been around a while, and we've noticed in this atheistic context that a lot of people say that Czech is one of the most atheistic places on earth. 
But as I've been talking to students and listening to people's story, it seems to me that most people just really don't know what they think and what they believe, and they're looking for something. And at that, I was like, for sure, someone's going to be upset. But they start, actually, I looked around the room, and there's some head bobbing. I was like, oh, wow, this is going way better than I thought. So I took another step further. I said, listen, if any of you would like to go out for a coffee or a drink or anything, I'd love to sit and listen to your story and talk about faith and God and things that matter. And then we moved on, and I thought that was the end of it. But then right after we, I was cleaning up the presentation, some girls came up to my wife and said, hey, we're going to a, a pub. We actually go every week. We go to this pub and just hang out for an hour. Would you come with us tonight? And I was like, my wife pulls me over and said, I hear about it. I was like, okay. I did say that I probably would buy something, and maybe they're trying to take advantage of me. <laughs> but I'm going to go. And so we both went, and about 12, 13 students show up, and we talk, and we listen to their story, and we talk about God. And from that little meeting, we invite them to our house, and they come, and they talk more about God and faith. And from that little meeting, we just said, hey, have you guys, I know you you don't believe in God, but have you ever read the Bible? I mean, do you know what you're rejecting? And they're like, no, we actually have never read the Bible. And so I said, do you want to? Yeah, that sounds cool. Let's do it. And from there came this beautiful progress and process of just opening up the scriptures and talking together from a mistake, right? Something I was frustrated about. But that moment came out of the question, this trial, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And I don't know if you've felt that in this uh, American context and culture that the world is asking, what's the deal with Christianity? Why is that? What is that? Maybe in your relationships, in your homes, in your work relationships, there's this sense of, like, what's the deal? This interrogation, this trial. I don't know if you feel that attention, but that tension, but we're going to d- jump into that today in Acts 26. So get ready. If you brought a Bible, you can, you can pull it out or a phone. Uh, we're going to jump into Acts 26. Uh, and just to set the, the context here briefly, As I said, Paul's on trial, and he's on trial in a Roman court, uh, and the guy in charge is Festus. He's a governor. And Paul's there, and Festus is like, there's, I don't know what to do with this guy, because there's a lot of Jewish accusations going around, and I'm not really familiar with this. I don't know what to say, what to do. So Festus invites his uh, political partner in another region, a guy named King Agrippa. And King Agrippa is an interesting guy because King Agrippa's grandfather is Herod the Great. How many of you guys, if you've read the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels, Herod the Great, oh, we know that guy from the nativity stories, Jesus, right? And he was not a happy guy. He actually killed a lot of babies in search of squashing out this prophesied Messiah. That was his grandfather. His father was King Agrippa I, and King Agrippa I in Acts 12, is the guy that put Peter in prison. He's also the guy that put James, the apostle, to the sword. Okay? So Paul's not in good company. It's not a good thing for Paul. So what is he going to do? What is he going to say on his defense? Let's read it. 
Verse 1 in chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusation of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jews' customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, even living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this promise, this hope, that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put, into, put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Let's stop there for a moment. What is Paul doing? He's supposed to be making a defense. He's supposed to be having some kind of excuse. But he's centering his discussion on hope. He's centering his discussion on hope. Not on something that he has done, but something that has been done in the past. It's very awkward. I don't know about you, but hope is quite an interesting topic. It's quite an important topic of the day in the past two to three years, right? The predictable has become unpredictable. Socially, relationally, environmentally, politically, pretty much everything in our lives has been kind of shaken up and people are desperately trying to find what is hope, what is certain, what can we plant into. I came across an article just this week in the Harvard Business Review and its title was this, Sustaining Hope in Uncertain Times. Huh. Even the Harvard guys are like, we need some hope. And this is how the article refers to what hope is. This is how it's hope is defined. Hope is the belief that the future will be better than the present. Coupled with the belief that you have the power to make it so. There's a future out there. You just have to believe it'll be better. And... You have that power to grasp onto that future. So the the writer continues. He says, basically, you imagine that better future. You make a plan to get it, and maybe things don't go your way, but you keep going. You keep trying. Keep trying to grab that hope, that future. I think Paul probably had, before he knew Christ, probably had a little bit of this optimism, 
And it seems like it's optimistic, right? And optimism isn't a bad thing. How many of you guys are optimists? Some of you are optimists. The glass is half full. We're going to, yeah, that's not, a, that's not a bad thing at all. That's not a bad thing. It's this sense of saying, hey, the future will be better. Let's hope for it. That's good. But Paul also had this optimistic sense before he knew Jesus, and it was kind of a religious optimism. It was kind of a religious optimism because you see in verse 9, he says, it's in his explanation, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that, that, that was possible to oppose the name. I ought to. It's a religious optimism that says there's something out there. Things will be better. I ought to try. I ought to attain. I ought to try harder, and I'll get that. And Paul was really good at it. He was insanely good at it. And he was trying harder and harder and harder. But this new Paul, this Paul that's on trial, is not talking about that kind of hope. He's not talking about that kind of hope that is something that wells up from inside you, a belief that you can grab a better future if you just try Paul's hope isn't dictated by circumstances. See, it's a hope that's radically changed Paul's life. So what is this hope that he's holding on to? Let's continue to see what he has to say. Verse 12 says this. On one of these journeys, Paul says, I was going down to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road, and I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as servant. And as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me, I will rescue you from your own people and the Gentiles, and I am sending you to them to open your, their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision of heaven, first to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some of the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. This is incredible that Paul is actually pointing out something personal to him, something that caused radical change in his life, this hope that he's bringing everyone's attention to, was rooted and grounded him 
in grace. See, Paul says he was literally, he's experienced this. He was literally in darkness. And his own testimony says he was so obsessed with pursuing and living this life of religious optimism and squashing out this Jesus movement. He was mad. And now he's clear-headed. He was murderous, and now his whole posture has changed. This is something that he's experienced personally. It's something that has rocked him to the core. And we get a picture of this in one of his personal letters to a young man named Timothy, who he spent a lot of time with. This is a little later from this trial. You see Paul wrote, as you know, many letters to the churches, but some of the letters he wrote to individuals. And you can get a window in what Paul is experiencing, what he feels about this experience of grace that he met personally with Jesus. He says this in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16. Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a prosecutor and a violent man, that's how I was. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, this hope that Paul is proclaiming is not this future hope. It's not this belief that's welled up within him. But it is rooted in the grace experienced in a relationship with Jesus Christ it makes him unshakable. Do you know this hope? Have you experienced this hope? There's one more thing to, to, to notice, to point out here. Paul's rooted in grace. But then, we're watching a trial. He's, try, he's supposed to be defending himself. His life is weighing in the balance, but he's not defending himself. He's actually making an appeal. It's fascinating to me that Paul is not trying to work, to work the crowd, not trying to convince anyone of anything but this, Jesus Christ, our hope. We get a little picture of Paul's perspective as he's going into this trial in Acts 20. He's talking to some friends in Ephesus before he's headed to Jerusalem, expecting that he'll be imprisoned or he'll get into some trouble. This is what he says in Acts 20, verse 21. He says to his friends, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house and from house to house. I have declared both to the Jews and the Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. 
not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worthy, worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. See, this hope that has grounded him in his grace is moving him changing his posture because the promise and the hope that he's holding on to is something that was rooted in history. Jesus Christ was not crucified in the corner. It's not some philosophy or some idea. Many of you have gone to Israel. Some of you are planning to go to Israel. We're going to the historical places to see where these events actually took place. So Paul is not even concerned. He doesn't know what the future will bring, but he's rooted. And now his heart has changed to where at the end of his speech, we don't have time to get into or to read, he actually offers this hope to King Agrippa in verse 27. He says to him, do you even believe this? Would you believe this? See, Paul's hope is motivating him, rooted in grace, and moving him to share that grace with others, to be on mission. That's what hope does. That's what true hope, certain hope, is for him. What is this kind of hope? Do you know this kind of hope that centers you despite the unpredictable situations that life has for you? Do you know this hope that is personal, that is experienced through the relationship with Jesus Christ? How would you describe it? This is my best shot at describing this kind of hope. It is a hope that is gritty, that is real, authentic, certain, joyful, raw, grace-filled. It is a living hope. It is a hope that gives us the power to stand and take on everything that life and death throws at us. It is the resurrection hope that is centered on the reality of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. This is why one commentator said this. He said, the defining moment for all human history, it is history, and for every individual it is personal, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we stand in the trial. If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. But what are we witnessing to? Some feeling, some optimistic, hopeful future? No. Our witness, our testifying, why are we here? We are here because of the grace of God that has grounded us and moves us into mission. It is Jesus Christ who is our living hope. And the church is alive. We are the church of life because our King, the resurrected one, is alive. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for being the King alive.
the resurrected king that moves us into mission. But that power and that heart of mission is grounded in a grace that you, Father, loved sinners like us and sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place that we might receive this grace and share that grace with others. May it be so among us, in Jesus' name. Amen.